everyone, my name is Sita and welcome to the Quantum Tech Podcast. These are some of my conversations with the industry leaders and pioneers propelling the quantum computing industry forward with the hope that you can take something from it. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the second season of the Quantum Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Sita, and um, really excited um, for another episode. Um, the first series is live and available to download, so check that out. We had some really uh, amazing insights um, from Omdia and Standard Chartered. Um, this series, we've spoken to the National Quantum Computing Centre, talking about uh, the UK's role uh, in the quantum ecosystem. Um, this episode, um, I'm really delighted to welcome um, Helena Hanshu, who is a Security Technologies Fellow at Rambus. Um, and she is actually part of our uh, Quantum Summit Advisory Board. So welcome, Helena. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. I'm really excited, actually, because this topic that we're going to talk about, I think, is one of those that um, some people might describe as being overhyped. Some people might say, you know, it's not a priority right now. Some people are saying we should be thinking about this. So um, I think this will be a good episode just to kind of break things down. Um, we're going to look at uh, security um, it, within the context of quantum and in particular um, post-quantum cryptography. This is so, and I kind of stress how vital this topic is because um, I think Helena will be able to give us a, a good standpoint of the potential risks and the threats um, that will develop alongside quantum technology and um, computing implementation, etc. So, enough about me. Um, Helena, why don't you just give a bit of a background? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you've worked um, in quantum and where you are today. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I started off my career in cryptography, uh, which is, you know, algorithms to secure communications on the Internet and uh, within embedded devices, access to, you know, your bank account, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's my main background. Uh, as I went along, it also turned out that it's very important to secure implementations of algorithms. So I became more involved into hardware security, side channel attacks, cryptography, because it turns out that with quantum computing, you know, some algorithms have issues. So our group has submitted uh, an algorithm and that's why we got involved. Let's start off with, um, you know, the here and now, um, traditional security cryptography, um, how will that change in the upcoming kind of quantum computing era? Um, so in cryptography, there are two styles of algorithms. There are so-called symmetric key cryptography algorithms and public key cryptography algorithms. And mm -hmm. in the upcoming uh, quantum computing era, one of these types of algorithms, the public key crypto algorithms, are likely to be completely broken by quantum computers. Mm -hmm. That means that uh, people have come up with um, attack algorithms that have been described in theory and on paper. Um, but as soon as we do have access to real quantum computers that have enough bits in them, uh, mm -hmm. these algorithms will be broken. So they will be uh, no longer usable and our internet security will be gone in some sense. Mm. Um, so in, in essentially what was, you know, secured today for 
many years to come will no longer be secure for more than a few days. So we're looking at reducing the security from perhaps 100 years out to a couple of days or maybe a week. That's kind of wow. a problem. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, I actually um, I heard a quote actually um, from somewhere and, it, and they said, if you are comfortable with all of your company data being public within the next 10 years, then you don't have to worry about this. But if you are, which I can imagine a lot of people are, I'm kind of stating the basics here, um, data is going to become kind of that that ultimate prize, isn't it? And quantum is kind of that that a tool that essentially will be used is that what you're kind of saying yes that, that's correct i mean it's about you know protecting the data of your company or other you know personal data as well and things like that uh that's one aspect the other aspect that people sometimes don't think about is that cryptography also allows you to authenticate somebody you talk to so you no longer would know exactly who you're talking to on the other side of your connection Mm -hmm. uh, you would no longer be able to sign contracts and to do, you know, electronic signatures because all that would be gone. So it's not just um, encryption and confidentiality. It's also knowing who you're interacting with and authenticating the other party. That's very important, too. OK. All right. Well, let's talk about, you know, the, this is this is where we're heading towards right now. Let's talk about post quantum cryptography. It's a term that I think is banded around so much. What what is it? What what do people need to know about it? So you have to imagine that these quantum upcoming quantum computers are able to break public key algorithms. Now, uh, these the main ones that we're using today are based on two difficult mathematical problems uh, known mm -hmm. as factoring and um, discrete log problems. Okay. And so these are sort of easily solvable with uh, quantum computers using Shor's algorithm. So what we mean by post-quantum cryptography is inventing new schemes based on new primitives, mathematical primitives, that mm -hmm. are not based on factoring, not based on discrete log, but other primitives. Uh, such as, for example, lattices is one very promising candidate. Uh, but right. these are still classical algorithms running on classical computers, but which are no longer um, at risk due to quantum computers. That's kind of the way to frame it. Mm -hmm. OK, um, so I mean, I know it's probably stating the obvious, but why why is it so vital that we're talking about this kind of right now? Because I think a lot of the conversation tends to be, well, quantum is is so far in the future. If we're talking about the here and now and trying to solve current technology problems, why is it important that we're talking about um, post-quantum cryptography? Um, it's important to start this discussion early and to do it now because of uh, different reasons. Uh, one reason is that um, Imagine you have quantum computing available uh, for rent, for example, for anybody to use in 10 or 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, what you could do today is store ciphertext, so encrypted data today, and then use those uh, uh, rentals or, or available quantum computers to break retroactively from today. So even if you think that today's encryption is still secure, whatever got encrypted and should not be revealed for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. For example, I'm thinking at, uh, of national security, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, it will be able to be broken in 
um, 20, 30 years from now, just by going back, using the ciphertext and trying to figure out what the um, clear data was. It's perhaps a little less obvious for signature algorithms. So when you try to electronically sign a document, if mm -hmm. you kind of deny that signature 30 years later, okay, maybe that's a little less of a problem. But everything that got encrypted today is at risk for many, many years to come uh, if, if it gets broken in the future. So that is one reason. Uh, the other reason is that it takes cryptographers a long time to come up uh, with an actual solution. So we've seen past um, examples of competitions run by the National Institute for Standards and Technology for crypto. Okay. Uh, for example, the very famous AES algorithm was um, run in a competition similar to this post-quantum crypto competition NIST is running right now. Uh, okay. And it took, you know, five years, 10 years maybe, five years to design and standardize it after people have already worked on it for almost five years. So mm -hmm. it, it takes a long time. So in general, there's good reasons to start today because we know it takes very long. And then past that, you, if you start looking at implementation, it also takes long to roll out these new algorithms and to have them implemented uh, out there in, in, in devices and everything. So that also takes a very long time. So we think we're, you know, we think it's far off. We think we have some time, but we have to start now. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, in terms of if we were to put a timeline on it, um, I hear so much, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the next five to 10 years where we're going to have um, a full scale quantum computer. Is that, you know, is that the timeline that the industry should be using when it comes to post quantum cryptography? Is Or, you know, is it something that we need to be thinking about kind of short term, medium, long term, because you talk about this implementation process, and you have to think about the investment behind that and then the implementation, um, the benchmarking, et cetera. So it's going to take a while. So what kind of timelines, if you had to kind of put um, an estimation on it, what would you say? So I would say, first of all, it's very hard to say when quantum computers will exist uh, in terms of uh, being able to break our algorithms. You know, people typically say 10, 20 years from now, but uh, it's hard to estimate. What you can observe with innovation and technology uh, progress in general is that the very first steps take almost exponentially long. It's very long to do the first few uh, little steps forward, but then at some point it kind of accelerates very, very, very fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then suddenly it becomes almost tomorrow. So I think we're still in the first steps uh, people are okay. still trying to figure out how to make quantum computers stable enough, how to mm -hmm. make uh, be able to have enough memory to run the algorithms they want to run. Um, mm -hmm. And so in these first steps, we have some time, obviously. We have time to see that we move from being able to store, you know, maybe five or ten qubits, which are the equivalents, you know, quantum equivalents of our bits today. Mm -hmm. uh, we have maybe five or ten, maybe we're up to 50, 60, 70 stable bits. So there is some time until we start seeing thousands of bits or mega megabits even, uh, which, which is the kind of order of magnitude we need for doing interesting attacks and interesting algorithms on those computers. But the first steps are always the slowest ones and then suddenly yeah, yeah. it will accelerate to a point that we don't even imagine. Mm. Uh, 
which means that we should start today because we're almost on the same timelines, right? The first steps in cryptographic design are always a bit slow as well because it's a new problem, it's a new primitive we're looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes industry and academia experts about, you know, a few years, maybe five years to get comfortable with a new um, mathematical primitive. It takes time to uh, optimize the parameters for security. It takes time to look at all different angles for cryptanalysis, trying to break it with classical ways, trying to break it with potential quantum ways. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to look at it for years and years, and then people get together in conferences, discuss results, somebody has a new result and, and mm -hmm. makes a breakthrough. It's kind of the same approach. So it, I would say, you know, there's perhaps around five years of studying uh, new things. And this, this phase is kind of ongoing now. And then there is uh, the second aspect, which is the NIST competition I talked about, which started in 2017 mm -hmm. um, with about 70, oh, a bit more than that even, but 70 full uh, uh, algorithms submitted back then. Um, and it took uh, a few years until round three of the competition, which just happened in July of this year, where uh, the portfolio of possible surviving candidates has been tuned down to about seven algorithms. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, four, four in uh, key encryption and key exchange mechanisms and three in signatures. So we're down mm -hmm. to seven from 70-ish to start with mm -hmm. <laughs> after, you know, uh, three, a bit more than three years. And okay. it will take at least another year uh, to select, further select uh, out of that portfolio to bring it down to maybe a couple in each, uh, in each category. Uh, again, encryption is one category, signatures is the other one. Mm -hmm. And after that, it then still takes about another full year uh, for NIST to come up with official specifications. Um, so something that the world can, you know, implement and that everybody is comfortable with, uh, with, you know, test vectors and parameters that are very clearly specified. So mm -hmm. we're looking at 2022 earliest, I think, to have a final portfolio. Uh, and in the meantime, you can you can continue your cryptanalysis work. You can continue to try to see which ones of the primitives uh, are likely to make it in the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're pretty pretty well aligned with uh, the schedules we're looking at for quantum computers to appear. Uh, but at some point, yeah, everything will accelerate. So that's where we're starting now. Yeah, well, it's the it's that kind of pivot point, isn't it? As soon as you, as soon as there's a turning point and um, the that computer is realised, every the kind of the the rate of development is going to be so fast. We're not even going to realise what's kind of hitting us. That's the, that's the impression I'm getting anyway. Um, let's talk about um kind of partnerships. I know you men mentioned um academics, you mentioned um universities and industry. Um who are those key people um that are kind of working on this at the moment? So interestingly enough the um submitted algorithms were mostly at this point joint work between many many different institutions. Uh, we at Ramos had submitted one which made it to second round, which was pretty nice. Um, okay. uh, Mike Hamburg was the author of this algorithm called Three Bears. 
but that's one of the rare cases for, for which the algorithm was kind of single authored. Uh, the other uh, candidates, so if you look at the, the remaining ones in the current portfolio, are mostly submissions which have 10 or even 15 authors on them uh, from many different areas, from many different uh, uh, backgrounds. So there is folks from uh, industry, you know, you have participants from Microsoft, from Google, from uh, Amazon, from other areas. Um, you have from academia, many different universities. There is the University of uh, Bristol in the UK. There is mm -hmm. uh, the University of um, Radboud in the Netherlands. There is the University of uh, Leuven in Belgium. There is uh, a Swiss university. So people, Germany, I'm forgetting a few, France. Uh, so, so there is really academics from all over the place. And then there is also some uh, uh, standardization um, uh, organizations participating, providing input, uh, okay. giving their opinions on, you know, what's uh, what makes the most sense for implementation security, what is the most appropriate from a performance perspective. There is sort of interest groups that give feedback on, uh, you know, when they implemented, let's say, uh, uh, 10 or 15 or 20 of the previous round algorithms, they give benchmarks, they give performance aspects, they tell mm -hmm. you how easy or difficult it is to implement in hardware and in software. So it's really a, a joint collaboration between many different people. And usually we get together in real conferences. This time we get together in virtual conferences yes. <laughs> uh, to discuss and, and to kind of update everybody, uh, each other on how far along things are and, and what new results we have. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that whole process of standardization and benchmarking is something that I'm hearing more and more. So it's exciting to hear that we're heading in that direction. Um, I mean, I'm kind of aware, um, I, I could talk about this all day actually, but um, let's talk about the reality of developing um, these algorithms. When when are they gonna be ready for deployment? Um, we, we talked about kind of 2022, um, is that kind of that time going to come sooner when it comes to algorithm development like what's what's um kind of in the plan so i think in terms of algorithm development we have some good ideas of what the primitives are that we would like to base them on uh as we can see in the last four surviving let's say encryption candidates and the last three surviving signature candidates uh, these are mostly based on lattice schemes which is a okay. particular type of mathematical primitive. Mm -hmm. um, so we like that one because the difficulty in those ones is to find short, shortest vectors in the lattice. That seems to be a difficult problem. So we like it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, there's one primitive based on codes and one primitive based on multivariate quadratic equations. Uh, so these are some of the, the primitives we think have a good chance of, of making it, of being reliable in okay. terms of security. Um, so, so far, so good, I would say. Now the question is, give it some time to see if anybody can break them in a completely unforeseen way. And that takes time, just time okay. looking at it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other question is, okay, how do we start implementing and deploying them efficiently? So we won't probably know what the final parameters for all these algorithms are until 2022, mm -hmm. uh, which means there is still some time to tune things. There's time to discuss, you know, how 
big the keys should be. Normally, we size the keys such that the uh, candidates can't or the algorithms can't be broken within 100 years. Now, we're talking about sizing keys in a world that we don't really know. Uh, so okay. there's a little bit of speculation going on. Some people say, OK, let's cut it as close to what we think it might have to be as we can. Others say, OK, let's take some margin maybe and make it a little bigger. Okay. Uh, but then, of course, you lose in performance in, in, in exchange. So there's discussion still going on on what the parameters should be, which means in terms of uh, deployment and, and implementation that you have to be flexible enough to be able to accommodate varying key sizes and things like that. Okay. Uh, and that's completely uncommon in cryptography. It's very hard to achieve, you know, crypto uh, implementation flexibility. That's one of the points where, where we still need to make a lot of progress. We know how to implement uh, cryptographic algorithms exactly once they're frozen, uh, but there's very little um, uh, experience. I shouldn't say experience, but we know that we need to make progress uh, yeah. in the fact of being able to handle morphing algorithms, if you want, or algorithms for which parameters change uh, or even switching algorithms from one to another. Um, as an example, when, you know, things like MD5 or SHA-1 were broken, which are hash functions commonly used in, in internet communications, it took 10 years to rip them out of systems and they're still um, present in some implementations over the world. So it takes a long uh -huh. time to rip them out and replace them. Uh, and, and we need to learn to be more agile and to be more flexible. So that's one of the first things that um, people are looking at. Mostly the cloud providers, the infrastructure providers are looking at, okay, how do we make our software stacks more uh, agile and able to adapt to this moving and changing situation, which is completely new to us in some sense. Yeah. Um, the other part, uh, so which is why, you know, in terms of deployment, there are some algorithms already implemented out there. If you look at uh, Amazon, Google and Microsoft have started their own implementations uh, using their own versions of TLS uh, protocols. So okay. they have um, they have some algorithms out there, but it's it's likely to change. So that that will have to be taken into account. Um, the other part is implementation on embedded devices, so closer to the hardware because you want to be uh, fast enough. Uh, you want to be uh, performance-wise. You want to be able to to you know follow bandwidth and traffic and so on. So how do you implement that? efficiently in hardware if the hardware you know takes 3 years to bring out uh, and then is really not that flexible software mm -hmm. implementation is okay you can still do something about changing things uh, but hardware is very much uh, you know not flexible <laughs> so how do you yeah. make designs that you can start doing today that will come out chips that will perhaps come out in three years or four years that are still able to accommodate changes that we will be making over ne the next year or two or three so how do you do that that's a really mm. good question and that yeah. is what i think you know gives us some interesting problems to still think about in terms of deployments Mm -hmm. well, th well, this is the thing, you know, it's it's um, a double edged sword in a way where we're having to start thinking about this now. But how do you um, kind of integrate infrastructure, hardware, as you said, that's able to be adaptable for, for years and years to come? So um, just kind of finally, um, 
if I'm thinking about it from an industry point of view, um, whether I come from a bank, whether I come from a retailer or a manufacturer, what are the things that I need to be thinking about right now um, to almost like kind of are there any fail safes um, that we currently have to tackle quantum computing? What what do we need to do to protect our kind of data uh, security uh, privacy in the wake of quantum? Yeah, so what people are trying to do today is to sort of use hybrid models where you use one currently still secure enough algorithm to do what you need to do to protect your data. Okay. Uh, and then together with combined with one of the uh, currently defined candidate algorithms. So you use them in combination so that, you know, um, the one that is quantum safe today, you know, will still be quantum safe in the future, hopefully. The one mm -hmm. that is classically safe today will perhaps no longer be secure. But on the other hand, uh, there's a second layer, if you want, or an, an, a combined model where one of the two should still be fine. Today we rely on classical. Tomorrow we will, we will be relying on um, quantum safe ones. So combine them and, and you're good with that. The other part is that Remember, all of symmetric cryptography is still okay. So once you've resolved, let's say, the key exchange problem, and once you've re resolved establishing common keys on both uh, corresponding parties, uh, using classical AES going forward for uh, symmetric key encryption is still fine because uh, symmetric primitives are uh, not really broken by quantum computers at all. Um, the complexity of trying to find the keys for those is reduced a little bit due to an algorithm called uh, Grover's algorithm, but it's only a few bits that we're losing. So all of those encrypted uh, data uh, parts and all that uh, information that you want to keep private that's protected under symmetric key algorithms is still fine. And that's a big relief. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's one of the ways that you can you can help protect yourself today. The other thing is that you uh, continue to make sure that your implementations are secure. So uh, start looking at the new primitives today. Make sure that you know in the future when the parameters are ready, how to implement them securely, meaning, you know, in terms of hardware security, how mm -hmm. do you make them protect them against side channel attacks, against invasive attacks, and all sorts of ways that hackers have to not break the math, but break the actual way uh, the algorithm is implemented. So that's work that you can start thinking about today. These are things that you know you can solve, at least on paper, uh, starting now. And then as soon as you're comfortable that you think the algorithms are stable enough, then you can start implementing them for real and making sure the implementations are, are fine as well. Okay. All right, well, food for thought, definitely. And I'm sure we're going to have um, some questions to follow up. So um, look, we're coming to the end of the episode. Um, Helena, I just wanted to, what I do with all of my guests um, is I'd like to ask them a couple of questions just to round things off. It's interesting to ask the same questions and, and get uh, different responses. So um, the first one is kind of my, my bonus question, if you will, um, mm -hmm. kind of debunking the quantum myth and by quantum myths, I mean kind of misconceptions about the, the quantum industry. What, in your opinion, what's the one thing that you hear time and time again that's untrue um, in the context of, of quantum? 
So for us in security and in quantum post quantum cryptography, the one theor thing we hear all the time is that quantum computers break all of cryptography. <laughs> they mm. break everything we use, which is actually not the case. So again, there's, you know, these two types of algorithms. Uh, symmetric key is still fine. You can continue to use it. Not an issue. It's the public key side that we need to fix. So the myth is that all of it is broken. It's not the case. You can stay safe, you know, using symmetric crypto. <laughs> okay, that's a good, good piece of news. Um, and I mean, I think from what you were talking about with um, the, the NIST competition um, and the progressions we're going to make, if we were talking a year from now, what do you think we're going to be talking about specifically? So a year from now is more or less the time frame, I think, when NIST will start reducing the portfolio to its final version. So we will mm -hmm. be talking about not four plus three algorithms, but maybe two and two that survive. Uh, and perhaps there is also a standby list, if you want, of eight other algorithms that NIST kind of put on the on the back burner a little bit, saying, you know, we won't pick these in principle, but if all the other ones are gone, we will start looking at this list. So perhaps a few of those will be uh, reintegrated into the final portfolio if any interesting cryptanalysis breakthrough uh, happens. So we will be talking about the final portfolio from NIST and we will be discussing finalized parameters so that the actual standardization can start. Okay, well definitely um, some exciting stuff to come. Um, who knows in a year's time? I'm excited to hear back from uh, from the kind of outcomes of that, that process. Um, we've kind of come to the end of our episode which um, seems crazy because there are as I said a million questions I could ask you so um, thank you so much for joining us I'm sure if you have if any of the, you that are listening have got questions um, I, th I believe Helena will be um, I'm sure happy to answer them any kind of questions that we get in right yeah absolutely and thank I you very much for having me And with that, that concludes this episode of the Quant in Tech podcast, with a thanks to my guest and the hope that you were able to take something from it. A special thanks to the editor of the episode, Tian Fu, with theme music created by Ian Host. If you enjoy this episode and are looking forward to the next, why not like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode? If you would like more information about anything that we do on quantum computing, click the link in our bio. And for any questions or anything you'd like to see me ask or request for upcoming guests, please feel free to contact me. Hope to see you next time.